Hello and welcome to the Shock Your Potential podcast. I am your host, Michael Sherlock. Each one of us holds great potential, and tapping into that potential is my passion and my mission. Shock Your Potential is a global leadership training company dedicated to creating positive, productive, and profitable workplaces. We develop, nurture, train, and guide leaders at all levels and at all points in their career. Through this podcast, I get to interview amazing leaders who are shocking their own potential and the potential of those around them. Learn more about us today at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com. And don't forget to check out my two best-selling books, Tell Me More, How to Ask the Right Questions and Get the Most Out of Your Employees, and Sales Mixology, Why the Most Potent Sales and Customer Experiences Follow a Recipe for Success. Join us now as we meet another great guest. And don't forget, subscribe, rate, and like us today. On today's episode of Shock Your Potential, we're going to talk about something that's important to a lot of organizations that are struggling to find a way to make ends meet. And usually that comes down to the fundraising dollar. So we have a very uh, unique company that is joining us. And one of the uh, founding members and the president, Jeremy Berman, is my guest today. And he is with an organization called Good United. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So one of the things that it, when I take a look at your organization, what you do, and your backstory is great, so I definitely want to talk about that. But I want to first dive into this. You say that we help nonprofits increase Facebook fundraiser donations, emails and retention without lifting a finger, which sounds great. And I spent a good portion of my career early on, uh, both working in a nonprofit and uh, volunteering for many nonprofits. And fundraising is one of the most labor-intensive, challenging, and often, um, <laughs> um, un, un, I don't know, it's, it's just not always great. It just doesn't always feel like it gives you all the great rewards that it should. Um, it's challenging in terms of raising money and keeping money going, but there's so much legwork involved. So tell me a little bit about what you guys do, and then we'll talk a little bit about why you do it. Yeah, what you are expressing in terms of your experience working at a nonprofit is something that I am all too familiar Mm -hmm. with. My co-founder and I started Good United about five years ago, and we started it with the purpose to give nonprofits the power to make every fundraiser and donor feel appreciated. Which is not an easy task because, you know, not only are you trying to find ways to fundraise, but you really want to make your donors feel good about it so they continue to support an organization. That's right. Um, What got us thinking about this was one, my co-founder is the founder of the nonprofit Stop Soldier Suicide. Mm -hmm. And these were a lot of the pains that he was experiencing firsthand. And the other was just the data that kind of blew both of our minds, which is that the long tail of donor, the one that gives under $500 every year, in aggregate, I think makes up like eight or 10 times that of the largest foundations and the largest um, high net worth individuals. Oh, 
Well, and that makes sense though, because there's a lot of people saying, you know, here's, it might be little, but here's what I can do. And those are people that are often committed to try and give as much as, as much and as often as they can, but they're smaller amounts. So there's a lot more legwork in that trying to keep all those balls rolling in the air or juggling in the air for donors like that. Yeah, that that's exactly right. And being on the other side of that as a donor for several organizations, the status quo experience was just garbage. Mm. You give 20 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and what would inevitably happen is you get put on some email list <laughs> and once a quarter or even worse, once a year, you're just going to get a long newsletter that in- contains 90% of information that you don't care about. I think that it's, you know, it, it's challenging then to feel like you're actively involved in something. That That's right. And giving nonprofits the power to make every fundraiser and donor feel appreciated was something that we really stood for and were really passionate to figure out how to try and solve. Over the course of the last four or five years, we've had a number of different products that have helped us get closer to accomplishing this purpose, but it always felt like it was an uphill fight in that we would work with nonprofits and we were finding how to solve their problems. And then when it came time for them to use the solution, they just never invested the time to use it appropriately to get that desired result. And when you mentioned how we are working with nonprofits using Facebook fundraisers today, that has totally without question changed the outcome of our organization. So let's, let's take, Let's take that back then just a little bit, because I want to get into that more in depth, but I'd like to know, you know, a little bit about your story and why this became a passion project for you, because I think often when we look at the evolution of businesses or organizations, uh, you know, missions that they start with something that, you know, when you're the founding, one of the two founding members, that there's a sense of there's something that really made this a passion for you. And I know that one of the things that, you know, you shared with me in the beginning is that, you know, you talk about your biggest failure that you had that dealt with volunteering that kind of transforms. Can you talk a little bit about that? And we'll kind of segue that into, you know, a little bit about where your organization is going. Yeah. So my quick backstory is I grew up um, upper middle class in Connecticut. My father is a optometrist and my mother um, is a retired teacher. And while my dad was a small or is a small business owner, the idea of entrepreneurship and taking a risk was never something that we really talked about as a family. So what that led me to do really early on was just kind of set out on the path that everyone around me was taking, which was went to undergrad at a good school at Virginia Tech. And after undergrad, I got a job um, as a consultant working for KPMG in D.C., and while I was at KPMG, I was working on all of these like big projects for the company, but I was never really inspired with the work I was doing. Um, I never loved the idea of coming up with the answer and then kind of entrusting somebody else to execute it on your behalf. And <laughs> It's hard. It's like raising a child. You're like, wait, I'm sending you off to exactly. school, but who's responsible for you now? <laughs> Yeah, and it was even like times 10 because 60% of my clients were federal um, organizations, the government. Mm-hmm. And the people we would work with had like just been pushing the same button for 20 years. <laughs> and they knew they were going to retire in five. And like all they wanted to do was press that same button for the next five years. So when we would come in and think about how technology could revolutionize what they're doing and make it more effective, like they just wanted nothing to do with it. Right. <laughs> and 
for me, what I what I learned was that one, I did have this desire to figure out how to find a career in technology that was meaningful. And the other thing that happened when I was at KPMG was that in 2008, when we were in the middle of that financial downturn, um, KPMG had this program where instead of laying off staff, they allowed their employees to take a sabbatical mm-hmm. where you could take off up to three months and still maintain your benefits and 20% of your salary. Wow, that's fantastic. What a great way to give um, some options to try and keep people afloat. <laughs> right. So surprisingly, like I was one of the few people that jumped at this opportunity. And my friend, who is now my wife um, at the time, you know, <laughs> my friend at the time, who is now my wife, <laughs> join me in taking the sabbatical as well. Mm-hmm. And what we decided to do was to go on a international volunteer trip in Cape Town, South Africa, mm. where what we thought we would be doing was working with all of these underprivileged kids and, and really teaching them how to read. Mm-hmm. And it had a unique angle in that the program was supported by a local surf shop. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to use surfing as a catalyst to get these um, children really excited about attending school and learning and getting really involved. That's very creative. I love it. (laughs) It was the best. I mean, for me, I was 24, I think at the time, and I got to give back, which was something I cared about. And at the same time, use surfing, which was something I loved um, to do as well. So it was just like this complete merriment of everything that I was was really um, passionate about at the time. But while we were there, it was really crazy. The school itself was way more underfunded than I would have ever expected. We're talking no running water, no electricity. Many times the children that were showing up, we gave them food. This was the only meal that they were getting all day. Oh my goodness. What a, what a kind of a crazy awakening and, you know, an awareness to find out when you get there. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And it was, it was run by this phenomenal woman named Penny and she was just a saint. Like this was her life's mission in creating this school and providing a safe haven for for all these children that wouldn't have one otherwise. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I just immediately threw ourselves into the organization um, to really find how we can make the biggest impact. And what that started with was what we were there to do, right? Which was to teach these kids how to read and to use surfing. And they were like two to five, so they're still really young, but it was really just spending time with them and being that mentor. Um, but what ended up happening while we were there was that the school completely ran out of funding and they were at risk of losing the building that they were in that provided all these wonderful resources for the children. So being 24 and and not knowing (laughs) my left or my right in this world, my wife and I just said, well, if you need help in this problem, we're gonna jump in and try to solve it. Um, Mm -hmm. Mind you, no fundraising experience whatsoever. Um, (laughs) Had some work experience, but certainly not how to navigate the world of politics in a foreign country. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Cause it's not just like you're trying to deal with that where you've got resources that you can access more easily. You're in a completely different environment with, with a lot of different uh, undercurrents that you're not even aware of. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and that was kind of the quick learning that we had and that we went out, we, we put some pitches together. We thought we'd be able to raise some money and, mm-hmm in the two month period that we had left, it was just clear we weren't gonna come anywhere close Mm -hmm. to hitting our goal. And at 24, we really did not have the context to take a step back and like think about like a strategy that would be sustainable and repeatable and 
really set others up for success going forward. We just do did what we had always done, which was like get to work. Mm-hmm. And getting to work without a plan <laughs> isn't the best way to go about things. As people say, hope is not a strategy. <laughs> exactly. So mm-hmm. sadly, we we were not successful in hitting our fundraiser goal. But what did come from that trip, at least for me personally, was to really get a glimpse into a world where I was excited to go to work every day and solve a problem set that I was very passionate about solving. So you, I know that, you know, from that, it, you know, a lot of times our frustrations and our challenges give us new opportunity to learn things and take them back and, and kind of tackle them in a new way, which is, I, I think, of part of where, you know, Good United came from. I really am glad that you shared that because it's important, I think, and, and many of my guests say the same thing, you know, to recognize, you call it a failure, um, but, you know, to recognize the things that we try that do fail or that, you know, that that challenge us, you know, that it's all about whether or not you allow that failure to keep you down or you do something with it to change. So when you, when you came back to the U S and I know there's a little gap from how long ago you guys um, founded good United, but you know, what about that trip made you want to do something different and be able to, to do what you're doing and try to support nonprofits and, and uh, charitable organizations the way you guys do. It was really the first time that I was excited to go to work and to solve a problem I was passionate about. Mm, absolutely. Prior to that trip, I had just been going through the motions of consulting, which at a big company is very structured, very rigid, and it's just like a linear path for where your career can add up or can end up if you check all the boxes along the way. Mm-hmm. If you push all the if you push all those buttons every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And for me, like my ultimate test that I like to do is I would just say, if I'm really successful in five years and I have my boss's job, will I be happy? And I would look at what he's doing. and I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, that's what I'm doing today on steroids. Like, that sounds awful. So for me, that was really the catalyst to think about what I wanted to do next in an effort to align my career to something that. I was really passionate about doing and excited to show up every day to um, contribute to. So because you guys have such a unique platform, though, and you do this through, you know, you really talk about kind of the the merger of technology and the desire to help organizations. How did this come about? How did you figure out a, you know, a software platform that allows you to to reach these, you know, reach people and have such great success? Yeah. So if we fast forward a few years, the next step I took after that consulting job was to go back to business school, hit the reset button and just explore for two years where I wanted to go next. And at UNC, I met my co-founder, Nick Black. And together, it really came together right after we graduated. We would start to think through different ideas for how we could start companies. We were like probably one or two of 10 people in the entire program that weren't at business school to go to investment banking, be a big time marketer at a consumer agency, or um, go back to consulting. So we had a lot of the same classes together. We had a lot of the same interests. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried a few things in school, nothing stuck. But after school, we had both taken jobs in other places, but we lived in the same area and our wives were friends and we would regularly get together and just talk about what could we do together. 
And let me guess, because usually that involves a couple beers. <laughs> Some of the greatest yes. ideas. <laughs> that's 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 right. Beers and, and barbecuing was our exactly. um, was our hobby at the time. <laughs> I like it. But that's where all all great ideas come from come from that world. Absolutely. So what was interesting was that while we were at business school, Nick started that nonprofit Stop Soldier Suicide. And one of the challenges that they had was that they had this big time event in New York. They had all of these people come and donate money. And after that event ended, they had no good way to keep these people involved with the organization until that next event the following year. So initially, we created a, a different product to help solve that. And it had to do around like giving specific items instead of cash. The next product that we focused on was a personalized email solution. So instead of getting these newsletters of 80% um, content you weren't interested in, we would instead have this algorithm that really understood what each individual donor liked and cared about by their interactions with our system. And we would send them personalized digests of content, which was smart, but it was just this uphill battle because what we learned there was that we had this amazing product that if you used it how it was supposed to be used, you would get incredible results. But it wasn't solving a pain that was strong enough for nonprofits to buy today. It was always like this nice to have, never the must have. Oh, yeah. And yeah, because people think, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, we don't have time for that. Yeah, exactly. And we were just fighting at the ground level with um, a lot of these great but small organizations for them to adopt this tool that was just a few hundred dollars a month. Mm -hmm. And it was just this constant battle. So in the fall of last year, Nick and I, at this point, we had raised venture capital. We had a team of seven. We had this product that worked, but it wasn't catching on in the market. And so we decided to take a step back and evaluate what we wanted to do moving forward. And the initial thought was just that if we stay the current course and do nothing, we're going to die by a thousand paper cuts. We will just never be successful if we do nothing. Mm -hmm. So we made the difficult decision to scale back the team and to just throw ourselves back into the problem set. So we started meeting with a lot of our old clients. We were trying to find anybody at a large organization that would talk to us and just explore the pains and the opportunities around their job today or at that time. Uh, I just put a funny little thing on on LinkedIn. I usually do a, a blog post every day, but I put out a um, just kind of a funny thing on Friday. And I said, here's two pens. I had a picture of two pens. How would you sell these to me? And I love that question because to me, there's so many people like, oh, well, they're beautiful pens. Oh, there's this. Oh, <laughs> one of my friends said, I'll give you the pens for free, but I'll sell you the paper on a, you know, on a monthly subscription. But, you know, really, then you're still trying to sell me the pen. You don't know if I want the pen. You don't know if I need the pen. So until you ask me, hey, Michael, do you need a pen? And I say, why, yes, I need a pen. And if you say, well, here's two pens I have for you, and but I really want a felt tip pen, and you never asked me the question, then how do you know how you're meet, meeting my pain point? So it's a great um, testament to you guys to say that you stopped, you know, said, okay, well, slow down. Let's go back, go back to the drawing board and ask people, you know, where are your pains so that maybe we can make a, make a merger of those. You're absolutely correct. I mean, in the simplest sense, ask customers what they want and give it to them. Exactly. Exactly. Like, that's it. And it's a painful lesson that we learned over the first four years where we were 
solving problems that we thought nonprofits had because we experienced them ourselves in one way or another. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the clients we were trying to sell to and to help didn't experience that same pain the way we did. Mm-hmm. That's a great realization. And it's hard sometimes to to be able to sit back from our egos, especially when we think we have the answers, but without knowing the truth of what, you know, is really holding them back, you cannot move forward. It's a, it's a sounds good, not it is good. That's right. And the hardest thing for, for Nick and I to do was just to get out of our own heads. We thought we had the answer. We never did. <laughs> Then tell me about today, because today, you know, you've got a, a different model, you're working in a different, you know, format. You know, what, what are some of the successes that some of your clients are achieving today because of how you operate today? So the craziest thing happened in 2017, and that is for the first time, nonprofits started to receive money through Facebook that was completely unsolicited, and it totally changed mm-hmm. the giving landscape for many of the nonprofits that we had been speaking to. So there was this great thing happening where Mm -hmm. every month they would literally just get a check from Facebook for tens of thousands and today hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars every month. (sighs) But with that check came this whole new set of challenges to solve because Facebook is a bit of a closed platform and they cannot control that end-to-end experience like they're used to when soliciting donations on their website. Right. So here's a check, but good luck trying to figure out who sent it and why and how to reach them again and get them the right message to know why they sent the check in the first place. <laughs> That's exactly right. So if we go all the way back to our, our the top, right, which is our purpose of giving nonprofits the power to make every fundraiser and donor feel appreciated, mm-hmm. nonprofits were struggling at best to do that with the thousands of people that were coming across their organization on Facebook every month. Mm -hmm. So what we did right this time was we didn't jump into the solution. We listened, we asked questions, we interviewed, and we iteratively built solutions that did not scale. They were manual efforts. And along the way, we really started to strike a chord where About six months in, we found that we had a solution that when we would talk to nonprofits, for the first time in our five-year history, it didn't feel like sales. Oh, fantastic. It was amazing. We would just say, we would ask them to describe their problem set. We would offer advice based on others that we were hearing. We would show them some ways we were approaching the solution. And by the end of the call, they're ready to get started. It was or is still today like the best feeling to actually have a product that provides so much value that organizations are ready to act in a moment's notice. Well, and it's really a testament again to, you know, how you guys looked at this and, you know, to really be able to sit back and and for Nick to say, okay, look, I, I saw these challenges with my own organization, my own nonprofit, you know, I know what those are, but you know, to really also say, okay, we have a great solution, but we're going to revamp this, relook at it, and then be able to continually change and adapt. That's how businesses survive today. I mean, there's no, I I still laugh when you're talking about the people who just still wanted to, you know, push the button, press the button every day. There really aren't those jobs anymore because business does not exist that way. And, and, you know, for everybody who says, I hate change, I always laugh and say, 
I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning. Like, you know, every, everything about our world is constantly changing. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but the ones who are going to survive and the ones who are going to succeed are the ones that are constantly um, confident and en- enough in their selves to adapt and change as circumstances change. You don't need to turn everything up on, on, on its head, but you have to be able to look at it differently. So it's a very, it's a great testament to what you guys are doing. Thank you. And it's a testament to the nonprofit organizations that have adapted the same mentality where they're open to change, not always at first, but they're learning that if they don't try to fight against the donor current, Mm -hmm. but instead they support them along the way and build a solution that meets their needs, then in the end, it's a win-win for everyone. Absolutely. I love it. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here for people in a, in a number of industries, not just, you know, that might be a potential client of yours or, you know, might be a potential donor to one of your clients, but really for us to look at ourselves and say, how are we stepping back constantly just to, just to look. And that's one of the things that, you know, I try to highlight in, in this podcast is, you know, looking for examples of excellence. And, and I focus on leadership and sales and the customer experience. So I want to segue just a little bit because we're kind of nearing the end, but I want to talk about um, the reason that I always ask people is, you know, Jeremy, can you give me the greatest uh, example of leadership sales or, or customer experience that you've been the recipient of? And I love to have people share that because I find that often it's something that sticks with you and that influences how you move forward and also how you operate in your business and with your customers. So do you have an example that you could share with us? I do. So over the last four years, Nick and I have worked with a number of different agencies and consultants who, for lack of a PC way to say it, have just been totally underwhelming. (laughs) I I can understand that. (laughs) And we're always having this internal dialogue of, is it us? Like, we think we're doing this great thing of not giving them the answer, but giving them the lesson right limits and having them just do what they do best. Mm -hmm. in an undefined lane with limits to get to that end result. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that often people need guidance. Mm -hmm. And when we thought we were hiring experts to do what they do best, we were always getting these underwhelming results that led us to think like (laughs) we could have done better, which is just like the worst thing to do. Like, I know I'm not an expert in anything. Nick is the best one that knows he's not an expert in anything. Like, there's no way that I should be designing a website or I should be the one optimizing ads. Like, there are people that do that for a living Mm -hmm. and we need to let them do their thing. Um, But we just never had good results finding the right people with the right attitude Mm -hmm. and the right experience to operate within the construct that Nick and I do best, which is unstructured. We give you mission, we give you intent, and then you go and operate and bring us along the way. Mm -hmm. And when we started this new iteration of Good United, we went back to the drawing board again to say, we've never had success working with third parties. What can we do to set ourselves up for success? And we kind of did the internal culture checklist of, all right, they need to have this and not this, et cetera. And as our product continues to solve this real set of challenges, our biggest challenge is just getting in front of the right organizations Mm -hmm. that can benefit from them. So if we can get in front of them, we can move along to closing the deal. So we found a group out in California 
that had a really unique approach to marketing through Mm -hmm. LinkedIn. And we had a meeting with their founder, who is a 26-year-old that lives Mm -hmm. in Venice Beach, California. And his entire company of, I think, like 40 people is like 22 to Mm 30-year-old men and women that, that live in Venice Beach. And our expectation was just like, oh, God, like another. <laughs> they're all going to be surfing. Another, yeah, they're just like they're here. They don't really care. They're going to like try, but not really try. Like the same story that we keep going through. And what has been that great customer experience for us is that these I call them kids. They're not kids. These men and women are just blowing it out of the water. They care. They show up. They're prepared. They bring us, Nick and I, along. Nick and I have this thing where I manage you or you manage me, right? We want to be managed when we work with others. And they're, they're managing us. They're communicating. They're telling us what the plan is. They're telling us where we are in that plan to hit the results. And it has completely transformed how I internally think about our own customer success within Good United. Absolutely. And just to say something about that, I come to Good United with a technology background. And I love building products that people love to use. So as we roll out this product, I have just been heads down and making sure that the product is the best that it can be and solves the real pain, just completely putting to the side the human element of the relationship with the organization once they sign. And going through this experience with the team in California, I've learned that it's not the technology or the solution that people value. It's it's the human interaction and knowing that someone's working as hard as they can on your behalf. And that they're communicating. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of our frustration with many different scenarios is when you feel like you're not, no one's keeping you in the loop or nobody's updating you. And I mean, it could be simple as whether or not you're waiting for a table and they said it'll be 10 minutes and now it's been 15 and nobody's come over to say, hey, just so you know, we haven't forgotten about you. Those little things, those human interactions are what make us feel seen and heard and valued and recognized. And that goes so far. You have to have a great product, but I'd be willing to give you some slack on the product if there's glitches, as long as we're communicating. Michael, you took the words out of my mouth. If I don't hear from you, I assume you are doing nothing. Exactly. (laughs) Well, that's a great example. And I think it's really important today that, and also one of the things I want to highlight is I know I suffer from this at times. And, and it's funny, I never thought I'd be one of those people who say, well, you know, in my day, you know, but I, I hear so much about the millennial generation and I'm generation X and I never really thought about differences about generations above me, but, you know, there's been so much play on, on, on the millennials that, I found myself um, having bias and and making assumptions and I fight them, but I also have so many examples of how millennials and their creativity just blows my, you know, everything I do out of the water. And I'm, I'm just embracing new examples of it, but it's still one of those things. I'm like, why is there still a bias when I've had so many great examples? And that's something I want to continue to work on for me. Um, because it's also about, you know, recognizing, you know, the diversity of everyone and what everybody brings to the table. I love it. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, me too. 
That's a great, a great example. So that segues right into, you know, the last question that I ask everybody. And that is, you know, we all have lessons that we've learned in lives that impact ourselves and that we can look back and, and reflect. So I always ask somebody, you know, everybody. So Jeremy, if you had to go back in time and you had the opportunity to talk to the younger Jeremy, um, what point in time in, in his life would that be? And what lessons or advice uh, or words of wisdom would you give him that would have shocked that Jeremy Berman? potential farther, faster, or kept you on the exact same path that you've been on? I have so many great stories that I want to dive into. Um, The first I will say is that one of the biggest awakenings for me as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur today, and I say this with a grain of salt, is that nobody knows what they're doing. (laughs) The the, The people that are the most successful are the ones that have the courage and the perseverance to jump in mm-hmm. and to figure it out by themselves and by surrounding themselves with other people that are smarter than them. Mm-hmm. That's it. So I love the idea of going back to when I was coming out of Virginia Tech and thinking about, well, what would make me happy and what can I start to do today to accelerate that path to my ideal career? The other one going into that perseverance angle is that when Nick and I decided to spin down the company at the fall of last year, we also had a decision to make. Did we want to go back to our investors and to ask for more money? Or did we want to figure out another way to stay alive? And ultimately, what we decided to do was to spin up a services arm and to make money consulting while we iterated on the next version of the product. Ah, very unique. And what that did for Nick and I internally was to shift our mindset from spending to investing money. Mm -hmm. So when we started and raised our initial round of capital, it was all about just spending. We did what we thought we had to do to be successful, but we didn't necessarily do the work to understand if that money would lead to a greater result. Ah, very good. But when it's your own money at stake, it just feels a little different for whatever reason. Mm. And it really helped us as leaders of the company to really think through every time we spend money, are we investing in a greater outcome? That is really important. And it reminds me of something I was, I was talking to someone um, last week and he was sharing frustration about his job and his employer. And he's a, a younger gentleman, much younger than I am. So everybody seems like a kid to me too. I know I heard you say it. Um, but he, I remember he said something to the effect of, you know, oh gosh, I can't remember the wording he used, but in essence, it was saying, you know, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, uh, he's paying my paycheck and, you know, so I'll just show up and do what I can do. And that his frustration with this company was so big that he allowed that to, to create in his mind, this distance that it was like, oh, well, somebody else paying my paycheck and they don't really care. And, you know, they have to pay me anyway. And I said, whoa, you, whoa. I said, I'm just going to call BS on that because every company that hires us, whoever we are, I don't care if it's for, you know, minimum wage. I don't care if you're a babysitter making $5 an hour, although I think they make more than that now. Um, You are, somebody has entrusted an important job to you. And if you don't approach it with the same respect as what would you expect if you were paying somebody to do that job, then 
I don't even want you on my team. Like now he wasn't on my team, but I'd say, you know, I'm come on, you, we've got to have respect for that business. Now, if it's a leader you don't like, guess what? You're always going to have a leader at some point in your career you don't like. <laughs> you know, if there's a mission you really don't like, well, then go work somewhere else. Or if you're, you know, you don't like, you know, your office chair, well, either do something about it or suck it up. But understand that none of those things are your right. It's a privilege. And the more we respect it, the more that if that we find we find the passion for what we're doing, but we also see the greater value and the greater good in what we're doing. So what a great recognition for you to say, we switch from spending money to investing money and looking at it as truly from, are we spending it the right way? And, And I think it's not just for you as the founder of an organization, but it's for that person that's showing up, you know, pushing the button is that you still are um, either spending your company's money or you're investing in yourself in that company again. Which one is it? That's right. And to your point, it all comes down to the culture within the organization to have mm-hmm. everyone feel like an owner and an investor. And that's what we're working towards with the latest version of Good United. Excellent. I think it's a great story. Jeremy, I'm so glad. I'm sorry we're re- we're out of time, but it's your story is very valuable. And I think that your message um, and your passion comes through. And I want everybody to know that all your information will be on our show notes. But I do know that now, let's see if I have this uh, correct. So your website is goodunited.io. Yes. Is that right? No, or is it just, okay, .io. Why is, why is it I.O.? We were originally goodunited.org, and there was a lot of confusion, uh-huh. and goodunited.com was taken, and the .io is actually, like in the tech world, a fairly common, Oh, um, yeah, well, for whatever reason. I learned something new. I had no idea. I was like, wait a minute, what country is that in? <laughs> because I know where you are. I know you're sitting in uh, in North Carolina. So um, gosh, all right. Look, I learned something new. So we will have all your contact information also on your show notes though. Um, but before we wrap up, any last uh, thoughts or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with my listeners? If you truly want to be a trailblazer and an entrepreneur, the right time to do it is right now. There's never been a better opportunity in the history of time where you have more resources at your disposal to fail quickly, to learn, and to keep going. So don't wait for that perfect time. It's never going to be here. The perfect time is now, and your success is going to depend on your perseverance to learn quickly, get up, and keep going. I love it. I love it. I love the idea of fail quickly, learn quickly, get back up, and do it again. That could be the name of your first book. That's it. Well, once we have once we have that success chapter, we'll start writing the uh, the book. <laughs> right now, it's a book of everything not to do. Well, that's there's nothing wrong with that either, Jeremy. Thank you so much, and it has been a pleasure. I can't wait to see uh, the continued evolution of your organization, and uh, I look forward to uh, staying in touch. Thank you so much, Michael. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Shock Your Potential. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and like our podcast. And for more information, find us at shockyourpotential.com and shockyourpotentialpodcast.com.